Now, before we begin, I'd like to share something quite personal, I think, and not so flattering, but I think there's such a valuable lesson and it hit me so hard this week that I thought I would share it with my best friends. There was a gentleman, I didn't know much about him, he was a kind of like a cowboy convert, he was like a real rugged Texan, I think, uh, and he used to always wear his cowboy hats, but he lived in Israel, and he converted and lived lived in Israel, but then he showed up in, in Houston, in our community, for a few months, and then every couple of years, he would come back for a few months, so we kind of got to know him. But anyhow, I had uh, an interaction with him that was, um, I would say, uh, a bit unpleasant, and that's from my end, and uh, regrettable. What happened was that there was someone in the neighborhood that had a, uh, a wicked recipe for for making the chullen stew, and he gave it to me, and then this guy shows up, this uh, cowboy convert shows up and he wants to get the recipe for me. So he, he starts calling me all the time. And I, I didn't have time. I was, I was like busy with a lot of stuff at that time. Anyhow, he shows up to my house like at the busiest time of the week. It was like a reenactment of what happened with Hillel in the Talmud. Talmud talks about Hillel. It was Friday afternoon, which is the busiest time of the week because he got to prepare for Shabbos. And there was someone that says that I can agitate Hillel. So at the busiest time of the week, he shows up to Hillel's house and starts asking him these uh, asinine questions like, you know, why do Indians have wide feet? And and he does it multiple times because he has a bet with another guy, I can make I can make Hillel uh, angry. Or I can agitate Hillel. Anyhow, I totally failed the Hillel test. And it was like it was like Friday afternoon. It was one of those really hectic times. And someone's coming to me and asking me about a recipe. And I'm like with my kids. And I don't remember what the story was exactly. So I, I said to him, I said, I, I, can't, I can't deal with you right now. I don't remember the details, but I felt really bad afterwards. You know, I felt like, you know, it's not nice to speak to someone like that. And, you know, and I recognize that this is me wrong. And I found him. And I got his number because he had already left, I think. And I called him up and I apologized. And I, I asked him, please forgive me. You know, I made a mistake. I, I didn't treat you correctly. I, I was a little bit, uh, flustered, but still it's no excuse to, uh, to treat someone like that. And he was gracious enough and he, and he forgave me. Anyhow, why am I telling you all this story? This week, this gentleman passed away. Now he was actually in Houston for Pesach and I saw him over Pesach and he looked totally fine. Obviously, it was an unusual Pesach, uh, but I happened to have been walking around the neighborhood, and I saw him, and I was, hey, hey, how you doing? And he looked 100% fine, and then I got an email this week. Uh, we are saddened to inform you of the sudden passing of Matisyahu ben Avraham. Matisyahu, the son of Avraham, because he's a convert. All converts are the sons of Abraham and, and Sarah. And I was thinking, like, how would I be feeling right now? If I had not secured that forgiveness. And, and that's what I wanted to share with you. I think it's, it's a really valuable thing. You know, we're told in the Talmud, we're told that when someone sins against God, you got to petition God for forgiveness. And of course, we have a whole, a whole season for that. We have Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and all the prayers and all the fasting and all that. 
And it's all institutionalized how the Almighty can be approached and can be lobbied to give forgiveness. But with sins against other people, it doesn't work like that. There isn't like a scheduled time and there isn't a scheduled uh, format and there isn't a formula that you follow. You have to just make sure that that person forgives you. And if the person doesn't forgive you, well, then there's some sort of blemish. There's a, there's a blight on your soul that only that person can fix. And the Talmud actually does talk about the Ram talks about what happens if that person already passes. How do you secure forgiveness from the deceased? And there is a process to do that. You gotta take a whole minion and you gotta go to the, you gotta go to the gravesite and you have to petition and there's a whole format to do it. But it's not simple at all. And it made me think, you know, this is a time where people, people are dying. Yes, of course, 99.9% of people are fine. And most of the people that we know are okay. But I think it's a good lesson, especially because it hit me so hard, to make sure that we're square, that we're good with everyone and not to kick stuff, not to kick the can down the road. If there's someone that you mistreated or you didn't treat properly or someone that you offended or someone that you caused pain, whatever it is, like, you'd want to make sure that you get that uncomfortable conversation. It's an uncomfortable conversation, of course, but get that done pronto because you never know how many opportunities you'll have and no one wants to live with the weight, with the gravity, uh, with that uh, terrible feeling of knowing someone has something against them and now they can never, their soul can never be complete until they are granted that uh, that forgiveness. So I, go, I know it's not related to what we wanted to talk about today, but I thought it was something that uh, really hit me this week, and therefore I figured I would share it, even though I don't come out, uh, you know, in the best of light. But I, I, you know, everyone makes mistakes, and I'm happy that I was able to secure forgiveness, and uh, I'm going to dedicate uh, today's talk in loving memory, Lilo Nishmas Matasiyah Ben Avram, may his soul be elevated in heaven. And uh, may we all take this lesson from him to make sure that uh, that if there is someone, and invariably, you know, we're not angels. If we were angels, we wouldn't need Torah. Angels don't have the Torah. We have the Torah. So we're not angels, and we all make mistakes, and that's okay. But make sure that we secure forgiveness before we don't have the opportunity to do that anymore, before time expires. We are up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 11. Rabbi Yonasan Omer, Rabbi Yonasan says, Kol me'oni, Whoever fulfills the Torah despite poverty or in poverty, Sofo l'kaima me'osher will ultimately fulfill it in wealth. V'chol m'vatel z'atorah me'osher but whoever neglects the Torah because of wealth, sofo levatla me'oni, will ultimately neglect it in poverty. So if someone's poor, they study Torah, they'll become rich, and study Torah when they're rich. And if someone is rich and they abandon and neglect Torah, they'll eventually abandon and neglect Torah when they are poor. That's the teaching, and we'll discuss it. Uh, just a quick background on Rabbi Yonasan. He appears occasionally in the Talmud and in the Midrash, discussing a wide array of subjects. For example, the riveting question of does the high priest 
mixed the bloods of various sacrifices on Yom Kippur before placing them on the corner of the altar. That's a dispute that Rabbi Yonason partakes in. Are you allowed to do work on Cholamoid, on the intermediate days of festivals? What kind of hair-cutting implements are prohibited for a Nazir to use? To whom was the land of Israel divided? Was it those who left Egypt or was it those who arrived in the land of Israel? How many people are needed to qualify a city to be a Iridachas, a city that's the entire city does idolatry? And he also participated in one of the most famous questions in the Talmud, and that is how do we know that saving a life overrides the Shabbos? And finally, he participates in a very interesting argument as to what qualifies someone to be an Am Haaretz. Am Haaretz means an ignoramus. What does someone need to do to be an ignoramus? One opinion says someone who doesn't say the Shema in the morning and at night. A second opinion is someone who doesn't wear tefillin. A third opinion, someone who does not wear tzitzis. And Rabbi son says someone who has sons, has children, and does not train them to study Torah. And finally, the last opinion is even someone who studies and even someone who studies the scripture and the Mishnah, but if they don't study under the tutelage of a great sage, they are already included in the category of an ignoramus. So those are some of the teachings of Rabbi Yonasan, and he gives us a very provocative idea in the Mishnah that if someone studies Torah when they're poor, they're about to do it when they're rich, and vice versa, if someone neglects Torah as a rich person, they may come to neglect it as a poor person. So, of course, there's some obvious questions we have to ask before we get started. A, why would studying and obeying and observing Torah, why would that contribute to wealth? Another question. We have a principle that there's almost no reward and punishment for mitzvos in this world. The way it's balanced out is that we believe that there is reward and punishment after this world, in a different world, in a different kind of existence. So here apparently we're told that there is reward and punishment for mitzvahs in this world. You study Torah, you obey the Torah, you'll become rich. That's the simple reading. How how does that square with the principle that we don't have reward and punishment in this world? And finally, we have to ask the question, is this actually true? Don't we actually see a lot of Torah scholars, certainly historically, who are and remain poor and destitute even after studying? And conversely, aren't there those who ignore Torah, who neglect Torah and stay, remain, or become rich nonetheless? So that's some of the questions that all the commentaries asked. So there are a lot of different ways to analyze this teaching. I want to begin with the Maharal, and he has, I think, an amazing take on this question. He points out that there is a verse in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 16, that talks about what are the accoutrements of Torah. Orech yamim biyamina, on the right side of Torah, is long days. On the left side of Torah, Osher v'chavod, there is wealth and honor. 
That's what the verse says. On the right side of Torah is long days. On the left side is wealth and honor. Says the Talmud, if you are taking Torah with your right hand, i.e. you're really embracing Torah, well then you have long days. If you're embracing Torah with your left hand, it's weaker, well then all you have is wealth and honor. So if you have with the right hand, you have long days, and that includes, of course, wealth and honor, but if it's with your left hand, then all you have is wealth and honor. So what does this mean? So what he explains is that there's two ways to embrace Torah. You can embrace Torah for its sake. It's called Torah Lishma in Talmudic parlance. You want to connect to the Almighty's Torah. By doing that, you are connecting to an elevated world. You are connecting to the heavenly sphere. You are connecting to the level of the world to come, not just this world. And there's a certain hierarchy between these two worlds. The world to come is a higher world than this world. And thus, if someone is living on the higher plane, they have dominion, they have control over the lower plane. And therefore, someone who grabs Torah with the right hand is ascending to that high level, and therefore, they're going to have long days. Long days, of course, is not a reference to this world, because this world is, is finite. Even if you live a long time, if it comes to an end, it can't be considered long days. Long days is a reference to Omaba, to eternal life. And if you have that, you certainly have everything else that comes beneath it, i.e. prosperity and wealth and long days in this world. That's for people who grab Torah with the right hand. If someone grabs the Torah with their left hand, they're not studying Torah with the same intensity. They're studying Torah for their own benefit, and therefore they haven't really transcended this world. They are studying Torah in or, or still limited to this universe. And therefore, the only benefits they get from the Torah are limited to this universe. And this is how he tries to explain the Mishnah. What he explains is, things will eventually regress to the mean. Meaning that if someone connects to the Torah, what are they connecting to? They're connecting to God. They're connecting to the source of all goodness. And therefore, if they're connected to the source of all goodness, it doesn't make sense that they should not have goodness in their life. And yes, that may exist initially, but eventually things will even themselves out. Things will revert back to what's normal, what is standard. And what standard is, if someone is cleaving to goodness, they'll actually receive that goodness. And conversely, if someone is abandoning goodness, they too, things will even out and they will eventually, by distancing themselves from goodness, they will distance themselves from all kinds of other goodness. And let me ask the question, how come there are some Torah scholars that remain destitute? And he quotes one of the famous poor sages of the Talmudic era, Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, we spoke about him actually a few months ago, he was destitute. He was a great sage. How come he didn't become rich? And the answer is that the Almighty is concerned that if you give him too much material wealth, this person will deviate from Torah a little bit. 
And because that's a risk, the Almighty is not willing to take. There's, there's going to be some sages that are so outstanding that there's a concern that if their focus is diverted away from Torah for a little bit, they got to deal with their affairs, it's going to be detrimental for their Torah and therefore they're not given wealth. That's one way to approach this. I saw another idea in the Rabbeinu Yonah. I think it's a very deep idea. We live in a world given to us by God. You put a seed in the ground, you put some water in it, and you have a, a free fruit tree given to you by God. We breathe the oxygen, a free gift of life from God. We're given food and fruit and a nice ozone layer to protect us from harmful rays and intellect and fingers. We have all kinds of gifts given to us by God. But the primary gift that we have from the Almighty is his Torah. He's giving us his way of thinking. He's giving us a way to understand reality. He's giving us a way to understand what is our purpose in life. That is his primary gift to us. And therefore, if we accept that gift, then the mind is going to say, okay, I'm going to facilitate everything else. I'm going to make sure that things work out for you so you can enjoy my gift to you with peace of mind, with time, with flexibility, with the ability to actually enjoy Torah. What happens if someone rejects the Almighty's gift? If you reject Torah, you reject the Almighty's gift, and therefore the mind says, okay, you're not interested in what I'm sharing with you? Okay, I'm not going to allow you to have the peace of mind to enjoy that gift. You don't want to enjoy it? I'm not going to allow you to enjoy it. And therefore, you're going to be encumbered with everything else. And I think this is a way of understanding it. This is not reward and punishment. If we accept the equivalent of the Almighty's daughter, in, in Jewish sources, the Torah is considered the Almighty's daughter. And the Almighty is giving, to us his, giving us his daughter. If we reject it, well, the Almighty is going to preclude us from having that relationship. You don't want it, you don't get it. But if we accept it, then the Almighty is going to facilitate that relationship and consequently, everything else is going to work out. Some of the commentaries add that we already had in this chapter the statement, who is rich? He who is, who is happy with his lot. I think that might be helpful. It's talking about becoming rich here. Not necessarily does that mean Lamborghinis and yachts. It may mean that you're content because you have all, all that you need to facilitate the relationship that you want to have with Torah. Now, I saw a very interesting discussion in this Mishnah, the question of challenges. We know that life is a series of challenges. The Almighty gives us a pure soul, but the Almighty also gives us the Yetzirah evil inclinations trying to get us to sin. And from every direction, we have challenges. And everything is is a test. And if we triumph in all our tests, well, then we're golden. Then we're good. Being rich is a test. Being poor is also a test. Both of them are tests. Which one of them is a more difficult test? So some of the commentaries note in this particular Mishnah, we have an answer. Being wealthy is a greater test 
a greater potential impediment to Torah than being poor. And therefore, we have to come up with a solution. If we want to become rich, both materially and in Torah, we have to come to a solution of how we could ask for a greater challenge that won't threaten my service of God. And the way one of the commentaries reads this Mishnah is that this Mishnah is giving us the workaround to this problem. How do we ask God for wealth when that may entail a greater challenge to Torah? And the answer is, if we're willing to still study Torah, notwithstanding a lower test, i.e., Poor, being poor, being, having poverty, even when we have poverty, we're studying Torah. The man says, okay, I'm willing to give you some wealth. I'll heighten the test, so to speak, for you. Okay, you pass this test, now pass the more difficult test. Well, what happens when someone has wealth and then they don't have Torah? Because the challenge of wealth is too much for them. The man says, okay, you can't handle this test. I'll make it a little bit easier for you. I'll give you poverty, which is a, a a lesser challenge to Torah. Maybe now you can study Torah. And thus, by us, so to speak, triumphing, by us succeeding in the test and saying we're, we're even willing to stick to Torah when we have the minor test, i.e. the test of poverty, then maybe we could move on to the next stage, so to speak, and that is... The question of can we actually have Torah when we are wealthy? And that's an interesting idea. Indeed, the whole life, our whole life is surrounded by tests and challenges. And being wealthy, we're told here, is a greater test than being poor. In fact, there is a very famous teaching in the Rambam where he's talking about Torah study. And he says, everyone's got to study Torah. Whether you are poor or you're rich, whether you are healthy, or you have illnesses, or you have physical challenges, whether you are young, or whether you're old, and you're weak, you're, you're weaker relatively. Even if someone is so poor that they are getting supported by the public, by charity, they have to study Torah. And then he ends. Ve'afilu balisha uvanim. And even someone who is married with children, which is, of course, the greatest test of them all, the greatest inhibitor, so to speak, of someone to study Torah, still you're obligated to study Torah by day and by night. I think this is, you know, compounded by coronavirus. Someone has responsibilities, wife and children. It's the most difficult test. And now the wife and children are always together with you. It's obviously a very great test, but we have to remember the following law, the following principle, that one mitzvah done in pain is equal to a hundred mitzvahs done when it is easy. And therefore, yes, there are challenges to study Torah. There's challenges of being poor, challenges of being rich, challenges of being healthy. You want to go outside, you want to play tennis, right? You want to have a good time. You want to run around. Well, study Torah. Challenge of being ill. Of course, that's a great challenge. It's even a, it's even a bigger challenge. There's challenges everywhere. But this Mishnah is exhorting us 
to embrace Torah, notwithstanding all the various challenges that that may entail. And if we do that, we are guaranteed that, of course, we're doing a great mitzvah, but there's the potential of us leveling up, so to speak, to the next level if we were poor and we study Torah, okay, maybe now we'll get rich because now we'll move on to the next challenge of having wealth and let's see if we can handle that challenge. But hopefully all of us will constantly be upgrading ourselves. Of course, that is what this book, Perky Avos, Chapters of the Fathers, is trying to get us to do. This is another way to do that, to think about the fact that the Almighty is coordinating and orchestrating and overseeing our particular set of challenges, and when we triumph in one, we're going to level up to the next one. And maybe we could also suggest, just in light of this principle, studying Torah is never going to contribute to us becoming poorer. It's not going to happen like that. Because if so, then the test will be easier. doesn't make sense. If we triumph in the test, then we can only get a more difficult test, not an easier test. Anyhow, my email address is rabbiwobajima.com. I look forward to studying again with y'all next week.